So we're continuing our sermon series in Isaiah and today we're reading from Isaiah chapter 45 verses 1 to 13. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will, re he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Let me pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that my words might honour you, that we might understand your word clearly and hear the things you want us to hear. Amen. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, once said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. 
And his point is uh, that democracy recognises that people are flawed. Uh, so we all have lots of opinions about what should be done and how it should be done, uh, but democracy recognises that we don't always get it right. And so we bring in uh, more opinions uh, and we build a system where if we don't like where things are going, at least we have the opportunity to vote and change directions. And the good intention is that the collective opinion of lots of flawed people will help us find the least flawed good way forward. So that gives us hope for democracy, uh, which is a good thing, uh, but I'm not sure if we always approach our own opinions with the same sense of humility. Uh, one of the beauties of having an opinion is it never has to get sort of tested in the crucible of reality. You know, so we watch the footy finals or we're watching the World Cup at the moment and when the coach gets it right, we affirm them and it's almost like that we've been involved in them getting it right. It's freakish how they read my mind. Uh, and, of course, when they get it wrong, then, you know, we, we're you know, screaming at their incompetence because, of course, we would have got it right and, of course, no one can ever test that our opinion is wrong. And sometimes on more of those deeply held opinions, we go even further by adopting that language of my truth. And if it's true for me, then what we're really saying is this is beyond dispute or beyond question. You cannot question my truth. But in real life, of course, when my opinion gets tested with reality, it doesn't take long to discover that even our genuine expert opinions are not always right, even with the best of intentions. And so as a case in point, I give you the humble cane toad. So the cane toad was introduced in 1935 with the very good intention of controlling these beetles that used to get into the, the sugarcane crop. So kill the beetles, improve crop yield, improve profit. Uh, it was a brilliant plan, except it turns out that cane toads are very good at killing beetles, but also very good at killing all sorts of other native wildlife, because they turn out to be quite poisonous when you try to eat them. Don't eat cane toads. Right, that's the moral. Uh, but they're also very good breeders. And so now we have this pest species with no natural predator who's slowly invading our country. So lots of good intentions, uh, lots of experts, but in the end, they were wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that we always get it wrong, but it does mean that we should approach our opinion with a sense of humility and a recognition that even our genuine expert opinions come with limitations. Uh, we don't know everything. Uh, we are limited by our capacity. We're limited by knowing the variables uh, that are potentially involved, and we're limited by our own bias. But, of course, all of this is just in my opinion. Uh, in the passage that we just read, it begins with God uh, speaking through the prophet Isaiah and he's describing how in the future he's going to use this foreign pagan king to rescue his people. But that news is not received well because his people have an opinion about how God should be doing things and this isn't it. 
uh, which takes kind of a special sort of arrogance. You know, they're the ones who have got themselves into the mess in the first place, and now they want to tell God what he should be doing to get them out of it. But it also raises some interesting questions for us in terms of how we approach God. Do we approach God with a sense of entitlement and expectation that God will conform to our expectations? Uh, Or do we posture ourselves with a sense of humility where we come before God with a desire to understand and a recognition that God is God and we're dependent on him He is not dependent on us. So Isaiah is writing in a particular historical context. So when Isaiah starts writing, uh, the Assyrian Empire is the dominant world power of the time. Uh, They've invaded Judah and they control about 99% of the country. In fact, the only bit they don't control is the capital city of Jerusalem, and that was just a matter of time. And so the king of Judah is given an ultimatum. Uh, We can do this the hard way, we can do this the easy way, but whatever you choose, Jerusalem is going to fall. And the Assyrian envoy comes and he, he stands at the walls and he mocks Judah's trust in the Lord. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zephyr Arim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hands? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And it turns out quite easily. Uh, God literally wipes out the Assyrian army in one night and the Assyrian king withdraws. And then as so often happens in history, he's assassinated by his children. Uh, So that was a win for Judah, and it looks like they finally reached this time of peace. But then Isaiah rightly predicts that the Babylonian Empire will be the next to try their hand, and this time they will actually succeed. God won't intervene. Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed, and the people will be taken into exile. But then in the wonderful saga of human history, the Babylonian Empire is then overthrown by the Persian Empire. And I didn't have a big enough map, but uh, the Assyrians were doing okay. Uh, Babylon was a lot bigger than the Assyrians, and the Persians were a lot bigger than the Babylonians. Not that it's a competition. Uh, But uh, the Persians did quite like the city of Babylon. Uh, It had lovely gardens, and so it became their capital. And the king of Persia is Cyrus... And that's where our passage begins. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. In Hebrew, uh, the word for anointed is Messiah. In the New Testament, uh, which is written in Greek, the word is Christ. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, it's a title, not a name. And we're talking about Jesus, the anointed one of God. And so it speaks to his authority and his power and his role, uh, that he is there to protect and save and lead the people. So for Cyrus to be given the title anointed was a big deal. 
Uh, this is a sort of title in the Old Testament that was only reserved for people like David. Now, I'm not sure quite what the modern equivalent is, but it would be something like, and invariably I'm going to offend someone right now, uh, saying Donald Trump is the anointed one of God and that he's the one who's going to save us from humanity. And now, in some respects, I'm very reticent to even use Donald Trump as an example because I suspect some people really do think he's a Messiah figure. Uh, Certainly, he thinks uh, he's a Messiah figure, uh, at least it would appear. Uh, But in terms of Cyrus, God's saying, I will be the real power behind your success. I'm the one who will subdue nations before you. And in many respects, this has very little to do with Cyrus personally. This is about God working through the events of history to bring about his desired end, which is to restore his people. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. And so this isn't about Cyrus being a good king or a moral king. He doesn't even acknowledge God, but God honours him and God will achieve his purposes through him. And God says he will do all of these things because he is God. I'm the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So firstly, there is no other God. And I think right there that's becoming an increasingly controversial statement in our modern culture. How dare any one group claim to have a monopoly on God? I think interestingly, uh, from my experience, it's often been people who don't believe in God at all uh, who are perhaps most offended. Uh, Once upon a time, I used to live in Sydney, in Greenacre, uh, which is a very multicultural suburb, and uh, and quite a high Muslim population. So I'd often have conversations uh, with people in our community. And uh, one night I was catching a taxi home, and you always chat to the taxi driver uh, because, you know, it's always an interesting conversation. Uh, And he's trying to uh, tell me uh, about Islam and why I should uh, follow Islam and follow Allah. And I'm talking to him about I'm Christian and, and what it means for me to be Christian and, and why he should be a Christian. Uh, the thing that we had in common in that conversation is that we both could not be right. Uh, we both agreed that we weren't talking about the same thing. And so the question is, what is actually true? And that was where the debate was. And, and it was actually a, a really you know, wonderful conversation. We chatted for about 10 minutes for the the taxi ride. We tried for about another 15 minutes sitting out the front of my house. Uh, and uh, he's probably thinking, you know, time's money. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, it was a great conversation. Uh, we, we shook hands, we, we parted ways. Uh, but the point was that we agreed that we could not both be right. And here Isaiah is unequivocal. I am the Lord and there is no other. And he is the one that has the power to do what he says he will do. So his power over light and darkness points us back to that language of Genesis 1 and creation. And one of the beauties of modern science is our capacity just to see the the bigness and the wonder and the intricacy of our creation and the universe. And it should leave us in a place of awe uh, where we see just how big and incredible God is. It gives us a sense of perspective. You know, God is big and we are very, very small. 
And the point here that Isaiah is making is that God created everything. God knows everything. God is the one who will choose how he wants to steer the events of history to achieve the outcomes he wants to achieve. And the end goal is righteousness. Your heavens above rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. So righteousness in the Bible is always about aligning us with who God has created us to be. So it's not simply what I think is right. It's recognising that God's ways are right and following him. And here we have this image of God taking this parched land and showering it with rain. You know, he's, he's watching the people flourish as he blesses it. And within that bigger purpose, God will use Cyrus to return Judah to Jerusalem and from exile, and he's going to re-establish them as a nation. Now, it's not going to be an independent nation. It'll be a nation within the, the bigger nation of the Persian Empire, but they get to at least, at very least, keep their sense of national identity. There'll be a capital and the temple will be rebuilt. So you would think all of that is good news. Uh, But for those reading it at the time of Isaiah and for those who will read it again in the time of Cyrus, this is an outrageous plan. Now, they want to be saved. uh, They just don't want to be saved like this. And I think it's a little bit like us and Jesus. You know, God uses Cyrus to save Judah from the outward consequences of their sin and his judgment. Uh, They rebel. uh, They've been judged. And God is now restoring them to the land. But God also has plans to send another anointed one, uh, one who would deal with a bigger issue, the inner problem of sin. Our natural disposition is to turn away from God, not just in terms of our behaviour, but just how we relate to God altogether. And in the same way that God has a plan to return and restore Judah, he's set things in motion to restore us. And so the Apostle Peter in the New Testament expresses it like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. You know, we look around at our world and we want things to be better. You know, we look within ourselves uh, and we want things to be better. And God says, even though you don't deserve it, even though you rebel against me, even though you ignore me, I will fix things. Uh, You have a debt to pay for your sin. I will pay it through your son. You want to know a better way to navigate the messiness of life? Then let me light your way. Let me be a path to your feet. You fear death. Let me free you from the threat of death and give you a living hope through Jesus Christ. Uh, That all sounds pretty good. Uh, The problem is so often we either don't believe it or we don't want it or we don't want it on God's terms. I think sometimes we behave a little bit like the employee who wants to be paid uh, but just doesn't want to actually turn up to work. And so we feel entitled to God's goodness and God's grace but we don't always feel that same sense of mutual responsibility. And often it's because 
we love our sense of freedom, or at least our perceived sense of freedom. For those who uh, like the Lord of the Rings, have watched the Lord of the Rings, yeah, our freedom is kind of like our precious. You know, we hold on to it and we don't want to let it go. Uh, for some of us, our freedom is about pleasure. Uh, for others, our sense of freedom is, you know, forms the cornerstone of our identity. And the Bible calls that desire to control our lives sin. And when God doesn't do things the way we feel he should do things, and particularly for me, then we start to question the goodness of God or the wisdom of God or the presence of God. And Isaiah rebukes that reaction from Judah, but it's also a bit of a challenge for us. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but pots herds amongst the pots herds on the ground. Doesn't the clay say to the potter, what are you making? You know, the Bible describes us as created in the image of God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, we are awesome in God's creation, but we are not God's equal. And every now and again in the Bible, we're reminded of just where we stand in the pecking order of things and to be reminded of our place. So a pot's herd is a broken piece of pottery. And we are pot's herds amongst pot's herds. So if you're struggling to feel special, uh, this is not helping. <laughs> but it is humbling. And it's a good reminder that God is ultimately the one who decides how he will order his creation and what ends he wants to achieve and how he will achieve it. You know, the people of Judah are questioning God's choice of Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and to set the exiles free. Uh, our questions are perhaps a little bit different. Uh, so they're more along the lines of, I, I suspect, things like, why does God allow so much suffering in the world? Or how is it fair that God would save some people and not others? Or why doesn't God make himself clearer? Or if God is with me, you know, why do I still struggle with things like anxiety or depression? And they're all good questions. But the real question is, how do we ask those questions? Uh, because often we're not asking them as a genuine question seeking to know. Uh, often we ask them more as a statement uh, and more as an accusation. And as we read God's word, uh, we do have some answers. Uh, and we can often find sometimes a whole answer, sometimes part of an answer. Uh, sometimes we can see in our experience how God works through the complications of life. We can see how it helps us grow in character. Uh, we can see how it reminds us that life is full of brokenness. And we, we, when we recognise that, we can see how God can be our refuge. But sometimes it's hard to see any goodness at all. And sometimes even when we find an answer in the Bible, we find it hard to accept. And I think often we focus on the question of why. You know, why is this happening to me? But I think often more uh, the constructive question is are the questions around the what and the how. You know, what does God want me to learn from this? And how should I respond? Uh, and that's certainly where Jesus directs us. Uh, when he was asked about these 18 people who died when a tower collapsed, the, the people are asking, wanting to know, why did God allow this to happen? 
And he replies by saying, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. In this passage in Isaiah, Judah feels they have the right to question God because God isn't conforming to their expectation. Uh, But not all opinions are equal. And so ultimately it does come down to a question of trust. Do we trust that God actually knows best? Are we willing to accept his way of choosing to save people? You know, he saved Judah through Cyrus, but the bigger issue was saving Judah and humanity from sin. And he chooses to do that through the events of Jesus dying on the cross. Now, it's not necessarily the way we would imagine God fixing things. But it is good news for anyone who accepts it. And when we accept it, It does impact every aspect of our life. We trust that Jesus has actually died for our sin, that we no longer have that hanging over us. We trust that God does know how to live and how to live well. And we trust that God has secured our future. So we may well have got ourselves into this mess, but thankfully, uh, God is the one who knows how to get us out of it. Amen.